All right, we're continuing our series called I Believe in Miracles. We are in week eight. Last week, we talked about the greatest miracle that has ever happened, which is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ on Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday. And this week, we're going to continue on in the uh, the timeline. We're going to talk about Pentecost and the great miracle that happened in Pentecost. But keeping first things first, I want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and read verses 22 through 24 and make sure we have that grounding. It says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So there are people who are attracted to the miraculous, and they're going to put their faith in the Lord when they see a miraculous sign. And there are other people who are attracted to the intellectual understanding, to the wisdom. Now, the message that Paul says is Christ crucified, which is not exactly a wonderful, miraculous sign. Of course, the resurrection is a wonderful, miraculous sign, and also something that can be complicated to understand. But Christ crucified is John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Christ crucified is the love of God for this broken world and for each broken individual, a sacrificial love. And that is a message that you're not going to go off the rails on. People have gone off the rails into supernatural things that aren't right. They've gone off the rails into doctrinal, theological, intellectual things that aren't right. But that God loves the world and sacrificed for you and for me and for everyone isn't something we're going to go off the rails on. And so when we keep our hearts tuned towards the love of God for this world, then I believe we can step into these other things and grab hold of them the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Well, let me set the stage for the day of Pentecost, the feast. So Jesus had three years, essentially, of preaching and teaching and doing miracles and fulfilling prophecy. And then he died on the cross. He rose again and at the, the festival of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, that is about seven weeks ago. So seven weeks have passed. And during that time, Jesus has appeared to lots of people on the same night that he rose from the grave. That first day of the week, he appears to the 10 uh, because Judas is out of the picture, of course. And then Thomas just ended up not being there. The next week, Jesus appears to that group again, shows himself to Thomas. Jesus showed up when he reinstated Peter on the road to Emmaus. There were a bunch of times when Jesus appeared to people during this time between the Passover, the time when Jesus was crucified and rose again, and the the time of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, the Shabbat. So Jesus has been appearing to people. He's been showing himself to his followers that he is alive, that he is risen. And then Jesus told them to wait for something. So we're going to go to Acts chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 9. And it says this, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So the former book is the book of Luke. 
which Luke also wrote to Theophilus. And now Luke is continuing the history by talking about the early church. So Luke's gospel, the life and teachings of Christ. And now Luke writes the book of Acts to explain all the things that happened in the early church. Verse three, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. So Jesus has been appearing to his apostles and, and other disciples, and now he just floats up into the sky. <laughs> quite, quite an amazing thing uh, that's being talked about here. But Jesus says to go to Jerusalem and wait for the gift that was promised. Wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. John baptized with water, but they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus has died on the cross and rose again, and that hasn't happened yet. Now he's ascending to the Father, and that apparently opens the door for the Holy Spirit to be unleashed at Pentecost. But I want to just make a quick side point. Jesus told them to wait. Have you ever been ready to go, but God said, wait. You wanted to do something for the Lord, start a ministry, talk to somebody about something, whatever it was. If you ever wanted to do something, you're ready to go, and God said, wait. I want to encourage you, from my personal experience, you get more done when you actually wait, if the Lord is showing you to wait. Now, if God says go, go. But if God says wait, you'll get more done if you wait. Be patient. So, seven weeks after the resurrection, we have the next major Jewish holiday, which is the Feast of Weeks, also called Pentecost. Pentecost was a harvest festival related to the grain harvest. And in uh, Jewish history, it was later associated with remembering the law being given to Moses. So it's uh, a type of harvest festival. People come in, they have offerings to give, and then also a remembering of the law. So in the Old Testament, the Jewish people had lots of holy days and festivals to follow, which I think is fantastic. You know, God clearly shows that he wants people to get together and have a good time. And so there are all these festivals and things to help us remember the things of God. And this Feast of Weeks or Pentecost is that harvest festival. And it's also something that became symbolic of the Jewish people remembering Moses giving the law to the people. So Jesus' death and resurrection was at the time of the Passover. So Passover was a Jewish festival that commemorated the Israelites being set free from Egypt and the plague of the firstborn. And because they put the blood of the Passover lamb on their doors, that then the destroying angel passed over their houses, but the firstborn of everyone else died. And that's what made Pharaoh say, all right, you guys get out of here. I can't fight against your God. You need to go. 
And there is clear symbolism as Christ being our Passover lamb. The blood of Christ allows the judgment of God to pass over us. And we are not judged for our sins, but we are forgiven and redeemed. This is clear symbolism. And of course, the last supper, what we celebrate when we receive Holy Communion was the disciples eating the Passover meal. So when Jesus said, you know, this is, you know, the blood of the covenant, he was doing the Passover meal. So there's obvious symbolism, Jesus, our Passover lamb. And I've wondered if there's symbolism with regards to Pentecost. And I think so. You know, I think with the harvest festival, this is the beginning of the the harvest of the New Testament church, the first fruits of people who are going to come to Christ in the New Testament era of the New Testament church. And also seeing that this is a time of the Jewish people remembering Moses bringing the law. This is the time when God released the Holy Spirit onto the world. So we go from the old covenant law to the new covenant of the spirit. And that's happening at Pentecost as well. So I think there's significant symbolism here with Pentecost And some people have even said, you know, Pentecost is the anti-Tower of Babel, which might make some sense here in a little bit once we start talking about what happened. So let's talk about the upper room. So after Jesus is crucified, the number of followers of Jesus plummets dramatically because they don't want to follow somebody who's been crucified. This is a terrible situation. And not all of them understand that Jesus has risen, that he is alive. Most people have not seen the risen Christ. And so maybe they've heard rumors, but they certainly don't believe. So the number of followers of Jesus has plummeted dramatically. And there is a reference to about 120 people who are following Jesus in the upper room. Let me read Acts 1, 12 through 14. This is the reference to the upper room and to the 120. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So this group was numbering about 120. These are the faithful, the ones who are continuing on. These are the apostles, Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's about 120 of them that are faithful. And this is probably the exact same group that is there in Acts chapter 2, but this isn't the same day. Uh, Some time had passed. And so probably the same group as Acts chapter 2, this 120 that are in the upper room. These are the faithful, the ones who did not give up after the crucifixion. These are the ones who believed in and saw the resurrection. So the question is, where are the thousands? Where are the throngs of people, the masses of people who shouted Hosanna two months before and put their coats down and palm branches down and declared Jesus as king? Where are they? Well, they were fair weather followers of God. 2,000 years ago, just like there are today. There are fair weather Christians, and then there are the faithful. And of course, I want to encourage you to be the faithful, to stand for Jesus 
whatever difficulty presents itself, whatever hardship, whatever challenge, whatever confusion, whatever it is, stand faithful. If things like, say, song choices, COVID policies, not getting enough attention from people at church or the pastor have thrown you off from following Jesus, then you might be a fair weather Christian. It's time to get serious and be a faithful follower of Jesus. Be a faithful follower of Christ. This life is full of inconveniences and difficulties. There could also be persecutions and true hardships. The things I mentioned are inconveniences. And so we need to be able to stand and follow Christ and be connected with the body of Christ, walking into our purpose in Christ, even with these inconveniences. So be a faithful servant of Jesus, even when things don't go exactly how you want. So these faithful, the 120 are there in the upper room. And then Acts chapter two, we see an amazing thing happen. So I'm going to read Acts 2, 1 through 13 to get us started. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things. But wow, this is an amazing miracle, isn't it? Like the tongues of fire come on the 120. I don't know if it was all of them or exactly what, but you heard the, the account there in Acts chapter 2. These tongues of fire come on. There's a big commotion. They start speaking in the languages of all these people, Arab languages, Roman languages, all kinds of different languages, languages that they don't know. Now, you can, they can't just pull up a YouTube video and learn a new language. This is just an amazing, incredible miracle, and they're proclaiming the wonders of God in all of these languages. So, I tell you what, there's symbolism in that. If you're talking about the harvest and the gospel going out to the world, the gospel is now, the wonders of God are now being proclaimed to all these people in all these different languages. And this is a, a symbolism of the gospel going out to the whole world. It's just a huge deal. And talk about you will receive power. Jesus said they would receive power when the Holy Spirit would come on them to be witnesses. And I tell you what, that was exactly what was happening. I mean, they had power to speak languages they didn't even know. That's amazing. And it got everyone's attention. But they also got made fun of as well. People like, ah, they're just drunk. 
That's part of the deal now too. If you want to be a spirit-filled believer and you're walking in step with the spirit, some people are going to make fun of you. You, you know, you say, well, God told me this or, you know, and people make fun of you and these sorts of things. That's okay. You know, it's fine. Work with me on this one. It's fine to be good crazy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's fine to counterculturally grab hold of the supernatural things of God, the things of the spirit. It's okay to have people look at you and go, man, that doesn't make any sense to me because you've grabbed hold of something, God, that's beyond the normal experience. That's okay. Some people might make fun of you, but keep smiling. It'll work out all right. All right. The miracle was followed by preaching. So in the book of Acts, we see this happen so many times where there is a miracle that happens and then preaching. I got to tell you, from a preacher's perspective, that'd be super handy. You go into a crowd of people, a big miracle happens, that gets everybody's attention, and then you tell them what's going on. And Peter is the one who follows up this miracle with preaching. The Peter who denied Christ, who was reinstated fairly recently, maybe a couple weeks ago, not exactly sure when that happened, but Peter has been reinstated, and now he's filled with the Spirit, and he's going to preach a message to the people he was afraid of two months ago, less than two months ago. So let's read pieces of Peter's sermon. Let's start Acts 2, 14 through 21, gives the Old Testament grounding, and then we'll take some snippets from the rest of it. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So this is Peter pastoring the moment. In the middle of this kind of mayhem and noise and all these people shouting out the wonders of God in all these different languages, we have Peter, hey, hey, everybody calm down. Let me explain what's happening here. This isn't just a rowdy drunk bunch. This is prophecy being fulfilled. It's what Jesus said, John the Baptist said to, you know, one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And that's what's happening here. And Peter is pastoring the moment. And so many times when you go into these types of things, you know, Pentecostal expression, moving in the spiritual gifts, vocal gifts, things like that, there still needs to be a pastoring of the moment. There still needs to be authority and direction given in that. So that's an important thing that Peter is doing there. He's pastoring the moment because he doesn't want this to get into wild stuff. We're not to put out the Spirit's fire, but we don't want wildfire. We want the Spirit's fire in the right place, decently and in order. Peter is doing that. He is pastoring the moment. And I've got three main points for Peter's sermon. The first one is 
These aren't drunk people. This is fulfilled prophecy. So we've already talked about that. These aren't drunk people. This isn't bad crazy. This is good crazy. This is people grabbing hold of the amazing things of God and sharing them with you. This is fulfilled prophecy from hundreds of years ago. Joel gave the prophecy of the last days when the spirit of God would be poured out on all people, men and women on all nationalities. This is the prophecy of the new covenant that Joel gives and the spirit being poured out. This is what's happening. It's not drunk people. This is fulfilled prophecy. That was point number one from Peter. Point number two from Peter's sermon is that you fair weather followers of God have failed miserably. That's point number two. That's a pretty strong point. Let's read Acts 222 uh, through 24, and then we'll jump to 36 and 37 as we see Peter basically telling these people that they've messed up. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then skipping down to verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So Peter's Second point here is that these fair weather followers of God, you know, oh, hey, free food, sweet, physical healings, great. Ah, persecution, I'm out of here. You know, those fair weather followers had failed. They had turned Jesus over to be crucified. And they had said, you know, let his blood be on us and on our children. I mean, they, they failed miserably. And Peter lets them know, you nailed him to the cross. You crucified him. You shouldn't have done that. You messed that up. So that's Peter's point number two. And Peter's point number three is, however, there is forgiveness and the Holy Spirit for you too. So we continue on after they were cut to the heart and they said, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 are added. That's 25 times 120. I did the math earlier. That's a 25 times increase of the number of followers of Jesus. So this miracle at Pentecost was an absolute catapulting of the New Testament church from, you know, a group of about 120 into this thousands of people realm. Huge, huge thing. But the main point that Peter was giving here is that forgiveness is available and so is the Holy Spirit. This gift that they have received of the Holy Spirit is available to everybody. For you, your children, the people in the future, for those who aren't even here, you know, the people a long ways away, anyone whom the Lord our God will call, all of them, the Holy Spirit, the gift is there. Forgiveness and the Holy Spirit are available for all. And I want to tell you that includes you. Forgiveness 
and the Holy Spirit in your life are available to you. This is a promise that hasn't faded away. It's still there. We're still in the last days. Jesus hasn't returned again and put an end to this age. We're in the last days. We're in the time that Joel prophesied about. This promise is for you. And I want to give a short, basic, personal testimony along these lines. You know, I didn't grow up in a Christian environment. I didn't grow up believing in God or going to church or anything along those lines. And, you know, I've been saying through this series that. I became a Christian because of the miraculous hand of God in my life. And just to give the shortest version of that, I mean, it was, it was uh, God responding to me as I prayed. Somebody had given me a Bible and told me to start reading in the book of Matthew because, you know, if God was real, that'd be good information to have. I mean, I didn't care if God was real or not. It wasn't something that mattered to me. But I thought, well, if God is real, that would be good to know. So let me check it out. So I I was reading in Matthew, got to Matthew 7, 7 and 8, where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't realize it was the Sermon on the Mount, but he says, seek and you will find, ask and you will receive, knock and the door will be opened for whoever seeks finds, who asks, it will be given to and whoever knocks, the door will be opened. And I thought, wow, I can apply the scientific method to that. Because if I knock and the door opens, I seek and I find, well, then I'll know. If I knock and the door doesn't open. If I seek and there's nothing there, well, then I also know because then that scripture is not true and I can just throw it all away. So I finally, you know, after a week or two of thinking about it, finally decided to pray as I was driving. It's about midnight after work. Uh, I'm driving 19 years old and I just thought, you know, what? I'm going to find out. So I, I prayed my first prayer and it was, Lord, uh, there's this guy who gave me a book. He says, it's your book. In it, it says, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. And I'm knocking. So as I prayed that, I saw up in the sky as I'm driving, I saw two hands appear like this and open up like that and freaked me out. You know, it was, <laughs> it was a scary thing. And it was something I had to process as far as like, okay, well, have I just lost my mind here? What's going on? Because what's more likely that there is a creator God of the universe who cares about people uh, enough to respond to them while they talk to him by themselves at midnight while they're driving. And then, you know, that God responds, or is it more likely that there's a crazy person driving around at midnight? You know, which is more likely I was thinking the second one's more likely. Oh no, (laughs) what's going on? Uh, I worked through that. You know, it was a long process, which I'm not going to take time to talk about, but came to the place where I, Hey, if God did this for me and it's not enough, who am I? So I'm, I'm going to trust the Lord. So I decided, yeah, this is enough for me. I'm going to, I know God is real. I'm going to go trust Jesus and I'm going to learn about him. But the thing that happened after that was I fell into a trap of the devil, which is I got really, really angry at the church. I got really, really angry at Christians and especially Christian leaders because I felt like, hey, you guys have taken the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You've taken the Son of God and you've turned him into a cartoon character that no rational person can believe in. You've taken the house of God. You've taken the body of Christ, the group of believers who are now the, the New Testament temple of the Holy Spirit, and you're just fighting and squabbling and superficial garbage. And I'm like, you're misrepresenting God in such a powerful way that you're driving honest, good people away from Jesus. And I got super angry. And this anger built over about a seven-year period of time. So I'm getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And then I went to a men's conference. And they had a time where you're supposed to cheer for the pastors. And I'm like, I'm not cheering for them. They're the ones steering the ship into the rocks. 
but it was a big conference and it was a long way to the exits. And I'm like, all right, I'll just wait this out. So I decided I was going to wait it out. I'm just kind of sitting there like, this is ridiculous. And when they had the different people stand up, I recognized some of them, not that I knew them before, but, you know, seen them in the hallway. They seemed like nice people, stood by them at the hot dog line, seemed like nice people. And then just this thought of, oh, these aren't evil monsters who are destroying the things of God. These are just normal people trying to do the best they can to serve Jesus. And kind of a a conviction hit me because all I was doing was being angry. And there was uh, this experience that I had. It was like, my chest had a bucket of cold water in it and like the bottom of the bucket just fell out. Just, and then a love of God hit me for the broken church and these people who are not doing perfect, but at least they're doing what they know to do, trying to serve Jesus. A love for the church hit me so hard that it was just an overwhelming experience. And by this time I was standing up, I started, you know, sitting with arms folded. Somehow I'm standing up. Everybody else is standing up at this time because they're doing a cheer for all the pastors, which I was trying to avoid. I'm having a totally different experience at the same time. And this love was so powerful and so counter to all of the hate that had been building in my heart over those years that I just was going to say something like, wow, what in the world's going on? This is amazing. And when I started to speak, it wasn't English. Like I didn't know what it was. I'm like, ah, and so I just sat right down like, what's, what's going on? And uh, another scary experience for me because I was not someone who was going to be prone to believing in speaking in tongues or, you know, the Pentecostal experience. It wasn't something that I was naturally going to accept. So then I had to work through that. But I got to tell you, the heart transplant stayed. And now, you know, I've cultivated my prayer language and, and all these sorts of things. You know, I'm, I'm walking in the ways of the spirit best I know how. But the biggest thing was the heart transplant. The biggest thing was going from hate to love, going from a critical spirit to cheering for everybody. You know, go get them. You can do it. You can do better. Let's bring all the churches up. Let's get stronger as the body of Christ. Let's bring the message of Jesus to this world. We can do it. We can do it. And I can cheer for you rather than find the fault. And I was good at it. That's my heart transplant story and why I'm an Assembly of God pastor. Because at that point, I wasn't associated with any church. I didn't have any background. And I went shopping and the Assemblies of God had two things that I really liked aggressiveness in sharing the gospel through evangelism and missions, and then a belief in the power of the Holy Spirit, Pentecostal doctrine, believing that spiritual gifts, tongues, interpretation, prophecy, miracles was for today. Because I had seen those things and I, I needed to hook up with a group that believed in that. So that's why I became an Assembly of God pastor, because they had those two things. And the impact of the Holy Spirit on my life really showed me that there's more than just believing that Jesus is real. There's more than just serving God. There's a spirit-led life. There's a heart alignment with us and God through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, for me, uh, and I I believe it fits into the scriptural reference of Acts 1.8, you know, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. Who would I be if I was still just an angry person? You know, that was 26 years ago. I was still just angry. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be sharing the gospel with this world. The key to ministry effectiveness and to peace in our own hearts through the storm, you know, the storms of this life is the spirit of God, the spirit of God with us, ministry effectiveness and peace in the storm. So that's my short testimony. Let me ask you about your life. I hope you're a spirit-filled believer in Jesus. If you are, cultivate that more and more. 
Don't be afraid to go into the deeper things of the spirit, to go deep into prayer, deep into worship, and just go as far as you can go, grabbing hold of spiritual gifts and, and exploring all of those things. Cultivate that. If not, I want to read Luke 11, 11 through 13. Remember, Luke is also the author of the book of Acts, and he records this. Luke 11, 11 through 13 says, Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So here we see that that's Jesus speaking, and he says the Spirit is there for the asking. The Holy Spirit is there for the asking. Now, some Christians have overthought all of this, and they try to get rid of the Holy Spirit. Some people have had bad experiences as people have gone off the rails <laughs> and uh, they've seen things they weren't ready for or things that were actually bad and it causes people to hold back. Let me tell you, the Holy Spirit is good. Don't overthink it. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Don't throw out the new covenant promise from the prophet Joel. Don't throw out the promise that John the Baptist talked about that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Don't throw that out in your life. We can't get rid of the Holy Spirit because God's plan for the New Testament church is that we be filled with the Spirit and walk in step with the Spirit and live in the fruit of the Spirit and express the gifts of the Spirit. This is God's plan for us individually. So I want you to open your heart. Spiritual gifts are for today. Hearing God's still small voice in your heart, getting that guidance is for today. Walking in step with the Holy Spirit is for today. It's as simple as Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that we read earlier. I just want to read it word for word. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness of sins is there. Christ paid the price on the cross. If you need forgiveness of sins and to come into the family of God, ask, and it will be given to you. You need to receive of the Spirit of God. You've got anger. You've got darkness. You've got anxiety and fear. You've got all these things going on which are not of God. And you need the Spirit of God to come in, then ask. So let's pray. Let's seek the Lord on both of these. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you, Lord, that those who went from shouting Hosanna to later in that week shouting crucify were able to be forgiven the moment that they asked, Lord, if you would forgive those who were so fickle, who were just ridiculously unfaithful to you, we are able to be forgiven. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for shedding your blood on the cross that we could be forgiven. Lord, for those who, who need to ask you to forgive their sins and pledge their life to you for the first time, I pray this would be the moment that they do that. Lord, and for those who think they can't be forgiven, that what they've done is too much, Help them to see that your blood, Lord Jesus, is more powerful than their sin. Let them not elevate who they are above you, but realize that what you've done is sufficient for them to be forgiven. And then, Lord, we open our hearts to your Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, you said in Luke 11 that we can receive the Holy Spirit if we ask, that our Father in heaven would give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And so we ask, Lord, fill us with your Spirit. Push out the darkness, but fill us, fill us with your spirit that we may hear your voice, that we may walk in your ways, that we may share your heart 
and that we may go forward serving you in your power. So Lord, fill us with your spirit more and more day by day as we seek you and we seek to serve you and we seek to walk a close relationship with you through this life. So Father, bless us with these. In Jesus' name, amen.